And the New Testament reading this morning, in which the sermon text comes from, comes from Ephesians chapter 3. We will read the chapter in its entirety, though the sermon itself will come from 14 and following. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly or written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden for in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us... Father, this is your word. And we ask that you would use it. We ask that you would uh, go for that you uh, would accomplish all that you have set out to do through this word, that it would not return to you empty and void. We pray that you would bless the hearer as well as the speaker. Pray for 
confidence and clarity of thought, and for the hearer that you would uh, cause them to hear your gospel, and that the very lips of Christ would speak to them. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to uh, share a children's story with you. Uh, It's one that uh, is very near and dear to my family in particular, Uh, so I'm going to try my best to get through it without crying, but please bear with me if I do uh, break down. But this story is called, Guess How Much I Love You. And in this story, it's a story about two little rabbits, little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. And it's time for little nut brown hair to go to bed. And as he's getting ready, uh, this conversation begins to unfold between little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. And little nut brown hair says, hey, guess how much I love you. And he holds out his arms as far as they will go, and he says, I love you this much. And big nut brown hair looks at little nut brown hair and smiles and says, but I love you this much. And little nut brown hair thinks, that is very far. And so he tries to think of ways to outdo big nut brown hair. He jumps as high as he can. He bounces as far as he can. He looks over the, or over the hills and says, I love you all the way to the river over there. And each time, big nut brown hair responds. And he stretches higher, and he bounces further, and he says, I love you all the way to the river and through the woods beyond and the hill over to the top, or over there. And now little nut brown hair, after all of this exchange, he's beginning to grow tired, and he lays down looks up at the sky, and he sees the moon and declares, I love you all the way to the moon, and promptly falls asleep. And big nut brown hair looks up at the moon and says, oh, that is very far. But then he smiles and looks down at his son. He says, I love you all the way to the moon and back. You see, what's so touching about this story about two rabbits is that little nut-brown hair never fathoms the depth of love that his father has for him. He can't comprehend his father's love for him. More than, it is more than he can ever possibly imagine. Every time little nut brown hair thinks that he loves his father more than anything else, his father outdoes him by a mile. He can't fully reciprocate that love. He will never, ever be able to match that love. And he will never quite grasp the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of the love of his father for his son. People of God, this morning, as we look at this beautiful passage of Ephesians that is before us, where Paul is praying for the church, and we learn things like that Paul is praying for the church that they would be strengthened to endure this life that is filled with sufferings. And as he prays, or as he prays that the church would be strengthened despite these sufferings, that they would be strengthened to glorify God and that they would praise him. And as he prays in the midst of this prayer, we are given a small 
glimpse of the love of God for his people. A love that we will never fully comprehend. Paul gives us a taste of the love of God which we who are in Christ know and experience. And he gives us this glimpse of God's love so that we will take heart and be strengthened to glorify and praise God amidst our difficulties, amidst whatever this world would bring into our lives. And Paul gives us this glimpse of God's love so that we would reciprocate that love back to the Father, however small, however imperfectly, by walking according to the calling by which we have been called, what he will talk about for the next three chapters in Ephesians. And this is the prayer that Paul has for us. And so we aren't left to the devices of our own minds and hearts to figure out how to achieve these particular ends. Paul first prays that the family of God would be strengthened together. Strengthened together. Our text opens up, and Paul is praying. And not only is he praying, but he's praying for you. He's praying for the people of God. In this written prayer recorded for the, church in, for the church of all ages, Paul begins to put practical meat on the theological bones that he has been establishing in the first half of this book. He's beginning to work out for us, to flesh out for us what's already been established in chapters 1 through 3. He is fleshing out, even in this prayer, the practical ramifications of this church's new identity. He's not giving a new theological treatise. It's not explaining some mystery that is difficult to understand, too difficult to grasp, like he's been doing for the last three chapters. He's not mapping out for the church the revelation that the church is now a unified body together of Jew and Gentile, as he does in chapter 2. He's not explaining our redemption that is a work of the Trinitarian God, as he does in chapter 1. Or the riches of Christ brought, and how they brought men from every nation together, as he does in chapter 3. It's a prayer. And he's pleading with God for the church, for the people of God. But note, it's just because it's a prayer doesn't mean that it's not, or that it's void of all theology. It's not void of theological content. Rather, his prayer is filled with it. It is filled with even Scripture itself, or reflecting Scripture itself. Paul's prayer has been informed by the revelation of God, even given in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Paul humbly bows his knee before the Father, the Father who has chosen a church before the foundations of the world, as Ephesians 1 explained to us already. And Paul prays, that the riches of his glory, the immeasurable riches of Christ's redemption of a people, spoken about earlier in chapter 1 and 2, and he prays that they would be given to you, to the people of God. And he prays that this would be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who, according to chapter 1, is applying the work of Christ to you. The one who is sealing our inheritance of, or the inheritance of heaven to us. 
Paul's prayer invokes the Trinitarian name of God, and he is praying that the church would be given the redemption that has already been promised in chapter 1. Paul is simply praying that God would accomplish all that he has set out to do, and that he would do them in the lives and in the hearts of the people of God. One of the most significant pieces to this whole prayer as it unfolds is that he is praying for the church. I hope you've heard that emphasis already. He is praying for the whole family of God. The NIV and the King James Version actually get at this idea better than the ESV. And I do love the ESV. It's it's a good version. But this prayer, uh, the ESV in this particular verse, in, in the first verse, verse 14, The SV makes it sound as though God is praying for each and every family across the world, on the earth separately. But what he's doing is not a prayer for individuals. This isn't for particular people. It is a collective prayer. Much like this letter has been written to a collective body of Jew and Gentiles. Paul is praying for the whole people of God. He is praying for his brothers, for his sisters, All those who have been named of God, who have had their names written on the palms of Christ Jesus. All those who will not be snatched from the hand of Christ because they belong to him. But notice what is most significant about this, based on the context of chapter 3, that Paul is praying. He's not just praying for the Jews, but he's also praying for the Gentiles, a body that has been grown together. He's describing what Paul or what God is doing in the church as he did in chapter 1 and 2. How God had broken down the dividing wall between these two people, people who hate one another. And now Paul is praying in accordance with that revelation that Jew and Gentiles who have been brought together into one family would be strengthened together. And built up together in the riches of Christ. And further strengthened by the Holy Spirit working within them. It's interesting when Paul uses this language of one family. It has clear and profound ramifications for the Jews and the Gentiles in this particular worldview. For those who were from the Greco-Roman world... We're all part of what's called a patristic society, meaning that it was ruled and governed by the father of the house. That's to an extent that we don't see this day anymore. I mean, this one father figure would rule over not just his kids, but his wife, his extended family, even his servants and the children of his servants, so much to the extent that if he ordered his own child to be killed, it would happen. And no law would suffer him. He would not be, uh, he would not, it was within the bounds of the law to do this. So much was his control over the particular family. Anyone who lived within the walls of this patera, this father, were under his control. And the Jews had a similar concept of the father, of patriarchs. Remember, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel, They who were the heads of all those who dwelt within their tents. And so as Paul speaks these words about one family, both Jew and Gentile know what Paul is getting at. 
And in this prayer, Paul is praying very intentionally for the whole family of God, both Jew and Gentile, to one father, the head of this household called the church. And Paul is praying that this people, this mixed match body, would be built together in unity, that they would be strengthened together. But he knows that this will take the power of God the riches of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit for a body like this to love one another. For the rich man to love the poor man, for the slave to love the master, it will take the work of the Trinity for these ones to be knit together in unity. And so he prays that the Holy Spirit would strengthen and empower you for this calling to unity. And that you would be built up together in unity, strengthened by the Holy Spirit and by faith. Strengthened by the Holy Spirit and by faith. Paul, as he prays for the people of God collectively, as he prays for us, he prays not only that we would be strengthened together and unified, but he prays for the means by which this would be accomplished. In other words, he doesn't just pray that we be strengthened, but he prays that we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit through faith. He goes before the Father and he asked to be or asks according to the revealed will of God in scriptures that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us. Notice again, Paul is simply uh, prayer is being directed by the scriptures. He's being directed by the revelation of God and he is praying that the Holy Spirit whose job is to apply the work of Christ to us, would seal the inheritance of heaven to us and would strengthen us with power. But why pray this? I mean, what is Paul's goal here? What is Paul getting at by praying for strength, for the very power of God to strengthen his people in unity? I mean, what's underlying all of this? Well, it's actually uh, far simpler than it might seem. When Paul asks for strength, when he is praying for strength for a body, it implies something about that body. It implies that we are weak. It means that we need help. And he knows this. One of my favorite prayers that I've ever heard was by an old saint who said, and he asked that God would prop us up in our falling down parts. And my spirit groans in agreement with that prayer because this is the reality of our fallen state that we are in, isn't it? I mean, that when we seek to walk according to the calling by which we have been called, that he calls us to in chapter 4 and following, that we fall down all over the place. I mean, we give in to temptations. We whine and we grumble, especially when we are in moments of suffering. We would be embarrassed and ashamed if anyone were to know the secret sins within our hearts. What we do when we are all alone. We have sins that we fall into and give into far too easily. And people of God, we need the Holy Spirit to work within us, to strengthen us for the daily moment-by-moment -moment living. 
We need someone to pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us, that our inward man would be renewed day by day, not just for the big things in life, not just for the big decisions and big areas where it's obvious that we aren't in control of them. We need the Holy Spirit working in us daily to finish the good work that God has begun in us. And here in verses 16 and 17, Paul prays that we would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. But he also prays that we would be strengthened by faith, that by faith, that same instrument by which Christ now dwells within our hearts, that by this faith we would be rooted together and built up in the love of God. And Paul mixes two metaphors here. And he prays that the people of God would be rooted in love and built or established in love. It's an image of a plant whose roots go deep and they stand firm. Or it's a image, and it's the image of a building that is built well and on a solid foundation that will not crumble, even Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And Paul's prayer is that we, the people of God, would be built together as a building, deeply rooted in the love of God, displayed for us in Christ by faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he prays that the weak would be made strong through the means that God supplies, even as we will see this morning with the bread and wine before us, that he would make us strong through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit, that he would work in us through faith, which is foolishness to the world. Beloved, we need this strength that he prays for. We need to have our faith strengthened and our inner man renewed day by day by the working of the Holy Spirit. But Paul asks God for one more thing in this brief prayer for the saints. He's been praying for the whole church. He's been praying for the strength of the Holy Spirit and uh, praying for strength in the people of God and their faith. But he asks one more thing of God. He asks that the church would be strengthened in understanding. Strengthened in understanding. Verse 19 reads that we would be rooted and strengthened in love in order that you be strengthened to understand with all the saints the breadth, the width, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And this Pauline prayer reaches its crescendo. It reaches its high point. What is it exactly that Paul is asking, though? Why does this sound so glorious in our ears when you hear it? Well, the reason I say this is Paul's crescendo, the reason that I say this is the high point, the high point, the climax of the verse, is not only because he's been asking the family of, that the family of God be built together in a strong unity, or that the people of God would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and faith, but he asked that we would be strengthened to know the fullness of the love of God, that we would know the unsearchable, unending love of God, that the people of God would grasp both intellectually and experientially the fullness of the love of God in Christ. And this is so difficult for us to fathom. For Paul 
is praying that we would seek to plumb the depths of God's love and never reach the bottom of the ocean of God's love. That we would reach our arms to the heavens seeking the ends of God's love and go as high as we can and never know the height of God's love. That we would look as far as we can to the east and to the west and never know the end of God's love for us. Ambrose, who was a preacher that Augustine sat under, he spoke of this love of God as a spear, as a, as a sphere that ever expanded outward, enveloping the people of God in the love of God, drowning us in the love of God, filling us to the brim so that we can do nothing but drown in the love of God. And he asks, that we would find that we have no need of anything else. And Paul prays that this love of God would fill us up, that we would know, that we would know the bounds of that love, that we would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love. But the question is, the simple question is, how do we know this love? Where are we going to find this love? Where is a love like this to be found? How is the people of God to be strengthened by this love if we don't know where to find it? James Boyce, he described where this love of God is found by telling the story of Napoleon's army. And Napoleon's army had conquered an old Spanish prison, one that had been used during the Inquisition. And as his men went forth and began exploring this particular uh, prison, they went down deep into the bowels of the prison. And down there they found a skeleton of a man who had been imprisoned for his faith and died there. But on the walls of that man's prison cell, they saw a cross etched into the wall. And at the head of the cross was the word height. And at the foot of the cross was the word depth. And to the right of the cross was the word breadth. And the, to the left was the word with. You see, people of God, what Paul is praying, that what he asks for the people of God, what he wants us to run to, when he prays that we would be strengthened by the moment by, or in the moment-by-moment moment living, the place where the fullness of God is that he prays will be made known to us is at the cross. That place where Christ Jesus stood in your place as an advocate before the Father, saying, this one is now clean because of my blood. I have paid for his sins. He is mine. The cross is where Christ gives us his active obedience, where he doesn't just cleanse us of our past sins, but he clothes us with his own righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ, a garment that far surpasses anything that we could create by our own works. You see, left to our own devices, left to our own righteousness, our works would be filthy rags to wear before a king of glory. But instead, Christ clothes us with his righteousness. And now we are being built together as the bride of Christ. And Paul, as he writes these words, he is overcome with praise for the love of God for us in Christ. And he writes this doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Beloved of Christ, Paul's response is the most appropriate response that we can have. And he praises God for his eternal purposes declared in Christ Jesus. He praises God for the work of Christ Jesus in the work that we will go forth to all generations. And he does what little nut brown hair did. He reaches his arms to the heaven in praise. And in love of his father. And his father has surrounded him and enveloped him in a love that stretches past Paul, that goes deeper than Paul can ever seek to. He outdoes anything Paul could ever do by a mile. People of God, what more is there to say? This is our only response to him who first loved us, who set his love upon us and brought us peace. And we can do nothing more than praise him. We can do nothing more but stretch our arms to the heavens and thank him for what he does and seek then to walk according to the calling by which we have been called as a token of the love for which he has given to us. May that be our small attempt to love him who first loved us with a love that envelops us, that surrounds us, that drowns us and fills us with the fullness of God himself. Let's pray. Father, we cannot fathom the bounds of your love. We see it displayed in Christ, and we know that you have done this work for us. Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would turn our hearts to righteousness out of our love and gratitude for you. We thank you for this work of Christ, and we pray that you would ever turn our eyes to him, even this very hour, even as we uh, see with our eyes and taste with our mouth the blood and body of Christ given for us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your people and you would continue to build them up in love and in unity by the power of the Holy Spirit and through faith. In Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.